originally when I first painted it and I, I was unveiling it here in Elmira, New York, the owner of the local hockey ring, um, it's a big uh, stadium. He says, when he saw it, he's like, if you can get Trump here, he says, you can have the whole stadium. He says, they run off to New York City to Trump Tower with a letter and a printout of the painting and telling uh, Donald Trump, you're invited to your own rally at this arena and the unveiling of your portrait. And I was ready just to give it to the man at that time, right? This was way early in 2015, like October, November, October 2015. So they were like, well, thank you, but no thanks, because they had no idea who I was and no idea, I don't think, where Elmira was. Um, it was just so off the map and it's in New York State. Who cares about New York State politically? Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Donald Trump, our former president and commander-in-chief, is never far from the headlines. We've had the January 6th hearings and now talk of will he run again for president. In many ways, Donald Trump is a lightning rod for both praise and criticism. You might say he's a polarizing figure in our polarized nation and in our polarized and deeply troubled globe. Julian Raven, a commercial artist born in England, raised in Spain and a United States citizen since 2015, was once one of Donald Trump's biggest fans. Julian Raven's art and love for his adopted country and its freedoms collided in the 2016 presidential election to raise questions about the First Amendment and the authority of the Smithsonian Institution. In his new book, Odious and Cerberus, An American Immigrant's Odyssey and His Free Speech Legal War Against Smithsonian Corruption, Raven details how he used his art to participate in the American political process and the enormous personal toll it took. Quoting from Julian Raven, Breaches of trust and the silencing of any person's First Amendment protected free speech within institutions of learning, regardless of that person's political leanings, trip the alarm of injustice and freedom. Raven's painting, Unafraid and Unashamed, features Donald Trump alongside a bald eagle, was Raven's enthusiastic expression of support for his choice for US President. Raven used his own resources to transport this large painting to Iowa to campaign for Trump in the Caucasus. After several attempts to present the painting to Donald Trump and after showing it at a political art convention, Raven offered to loan the painting to the National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian Institution. Raven will explain what happened after that in my interview coming up with him in a wee moment. Suffice to say, Raven has proposed and advocates for a constitutional amendment to define the legal status of the Smithsonian as a private trust or an institution or an instrument of the government and require greater transparency in its operations. And all this because Raven's painting was rejected, he tells us in my interview coming up, by the Smithsonian. Well, across the country, I had met from L.A. 
Iowa, Cleveland. I kept meeting people who would see it and they would say, oh, this needs to be in the Smithsonian. Well, after he won and I sat there wondering one day, what's the next step of the journey with this painting? That thought, I prayed. I was like, God, what do I do with this now? And that thought comes to my mind, the Smithsonian. I was like, bingo, that's exactly it. So I do the research. I find out, oh my goodness, look, in 2009 and 2013, the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, they displayed that same Obama Hope poster that I showed my painting with as a tribute to President Obama's historic win, 2009, 2013, right there. They had a display and I said, bingo, that's it. They they show political campaign artwork as a tribute to the incoming president. That is the pinnacle there. If I can get my painting on the wall, it's, it was not an if. It was like, that's the precedent. Mm. They show political artwork. And so with hesitation, because I was concerned, knowing the liberal art controlled institutions that are out there, I made my application again, detailed thoroughly in the book, and it was shot down. I get a personal call from the director herself, Kim Sayet. She calls me up one day and it turns into an 11 minute argument. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. That was the commercial artist Julian Raven detailing his war with the Smithsonian, which rejected his art piece on Donald Trump. In the view of Raven, it was rejected on political grounds. The Smithsonian Institution, for its part, has defended its decision to reject Julian Raven's piece, saying it did not reject it on political grounds and that it has very strict guidelines. And before we get to my interview with Julian Raven, it's time for our weekly segment of Future Shock 2.0 with Ira Wolf, who picks up on last week's segment on why we could be facing a recession with a surprisingly large number of jobs. In other words, a jobful recession. Ira Wolf, welcome back for Future Shock 2.0. We had a lot of people requesting more information on this jobful downturn you spoke about on our last segment. Tell us who's going to be the winners and losers here. Yeah, thanks, John. Jobful downturn uh, compared to a jobless recovery. Uh, in the past, just to refresh everybody's memories, when we've had a recession or, or had a downturn, the unemployment rate usually went up. So the economy went down, the GDP went down unemployment rate up. That's not happening at this point. It will probably happen to some degree. And the interesting question comes why, why that may be happening. I mean, think about all the technology that we depend on. You know, there's certainly going to be layoffs likely in the business development and sales in the tech world, uh, but in the development, uh, in, in maintaining the infrastructure, uh, it's it's not likely going to happen. And and as I referenced in the prior episode, tech companies are still hiring people. The the large companies, the Apples, the Googles, uh, the Metas, uh, they may be laying off people, but they're still hiring. In fact, the, the recent Meta number is that they were planning to hire a thousand people, and the big news was they cut back hiring. They're still hiring seven thousand people. They're not hiring ten thousand. They're hiring seven thousand. Still a lot of people uh, that are going to be hired when they're not available. They're still not available. Then we can look at healthcare. Uh, healthcare, we've had shortages for the last 20 years. We knew it was coming. It's getting worse. Uh, the, health, the burnout rate in, in healthcare, uh, the number of people that are retiring, quitting, and then the demand, just overall demand has, has is increasing dramatically. So healthcare uh, is going to continue to be hiring. The biggest problem, though, is if you look at tech and healthcare, is that there is a, a huge skill gap 
schism. People need skills. You just can't one day say, well, I'm working in retail or I'm working in hospitality. I think I'm going to be a nurse. I think I'm going to be a web developer. I'm going to be a secure, a cybersecurity specialist, a systems analyst. Uh, you need training. You may not need a four-year college degree, but you're going to need some additional training uh, and skills to be able to do that. That was Ira Wolf. He's a workforce trends expert, author, top five global thought leader on the future of work and HR. And Ira is also host of the popular podcast Geeks, Geezers and Googleization. And we'll have more from Ira next week. I want to remind everyone, listen to another great podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein and with yours truly on all things money and markets. It's a good time to pay closer attention to money and markets. Now with interest rates raised by the US Federal Reserve by three quarter of a percent, 75 basis point increase this past week. And the latest episode, episode 27 of Odeon Capital Conversations explains what that means for investors, how it will impact the markets and lots more. We'll even look at why in China residents are protesting against mortgages. It's Odeon Capital Conversations. It's up there on Apple, Spotify, and on all the good platforms. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. My guest is Julian Raven. He's a commercial artist who tells us about his war with the Smithsonian Institution, which rejected his Trump-inspired painting of our former commander-in-chief. Julian also has a book out on this war. It's called Odious and Cerberus, an American Immigrant's Odyssey and his free speech legal war against Smithsonian corruption, a true story by artist Julian Raven. The Smithsonian Institution is considered the world's largest museum education and research complex with 21 museums and even with the National Zoo under its management. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Julian Raven, welcome to my show. It's great to have you on. Good morning, John, and thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Now, I want to begin with your background. You were born in England, raised in Spain, and then came to America and eventually became a US citizen. You love America. You're a commercial artist. Um, your work is on display in many places and they sell for a not insignificant amount. At one point in your career, you were a big Trump booster backer. So you're an American patriot. You're a conservative. It's an interesting place to begin because I always think of artists as kind of bohemian kind of spirits, maybe free spirits, if you will, um, no, no boundaries, their art defines themselves. Your go against the grain. Tell us a bit about yourself and your journey. Well, yes, they, and you touch on a, on a, a very important aspect of my pursuit in the arts. And that is a lot of my work is would be classified as abstract expressionism. And that, um, to me was a very interesting period in art history because artists were attempting to convey or express their inner world experience, their inner realities. And in the, in the art world, the sort of great contradiction is that they do, as you said, they're looking for 
there's sort of no holds barred, there's no boundaries, anything goes. It, it is somewhat of a madhouse because of that. But I, in my experience as somebody who was formerly like that, I, that's my background. My, my BC background or before Christ background was a hard rock bar owner in Southern Spain, drink, drugs, girls. I was completely off the wall and then had this dramatic conversion experience on a mountain in Southern Spain. Now, that coming to Christ and that change in my life that dramatically affected me obviously affected the arts. And as an expressionist, I, I went on a journey to see how can I express this wonderful inner transformation that I have had. I've been born again. And in that same expressive mode as the abstract expressionist, I've, I've painted in my studio, I have giant paintings. So the longest was 28 feet long of these massive painting explosions in an attempt to express the wonder of the life-changing experience that I had. And I thought, well, I'd present that to the art world and they'd be, oh, this is wonderful. No, they thumb that. They're like, no, we don't want anything to do with that. They're like, this is, this is madness. And I'm like, what do you mean? I said, joy and life and, <laughs> and, and freedom and, and all the, I have so many wonderful changes. I was in such a, I was in, you know, the Rothko and Pollock, you know, they had train wreck of lives, you know, depression and suicide and terrible lives. And I got, I was like that, but I got freed from that and changed and they don't want to hear about it. So it is, it is a contradiction. It's a challenge for me. I, I've re I'm rejected in most places that people know of my, what I believe, because unfortunately the art world today does march to this sort of ideological drum that if you do not believe according to their tenets, no matter what you paint or how, how good or bad it may be, you're not, your art isn't even considered. It's not a meritocracy. It's a, it's driven ideologically. So that's my experience, John. And um, freedom though is, is a great part of my pursuit as an artist to express that inner life change and beauty that God himself has worked in my life. Why do you think artists are like that? A lot of them, maybe the vast majority uh, are how you described it's a challenge for me because I, I always question the people I speak to about it. And, and the way that the art world is driven, that they, if you present beauty to the art world, they say, oh, it can't be beautiful. It's beauty is decorative. We don't want beauty. It's got to be ugly and coarse and rude. And, and, and why artists want to just sort of vomit their lives. I think it's part of being an artist that you have this expressive ability to share, but the filter through which they're sharing it is so decrepit that they can't help but be themselves. And it is a reflection to me of an unredeemed world or unredeemed people who, who really couldn't care less about what they're really doing to people. They're so obsessed with saying, this is my dark and depraved and depressed life, and you need to look at it and wallow in it with me. And I'm like, no, 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 this is my redeemed life. And I want you to be inspired and moved and changed and have hope and vision. That's where the difference is. So why does the, the world celebrate it? I can only, as a Christian, I only say, well, it's because, you know, they love the darkness and they don't love the light. We have to be um, clear about this. The successful artists in our world today, the, many of them, maybe the vast majority, um, are of that mold. They're angry, pushing the boundaries. As you said, they at the workout um they're unconventional uh, it's maybe not about beauty it's about some maybe it's addresses our existential crisis um and the bigger point maybe is that it gets supported commercially by our culture and our society 
It does. And that, that's how the art world functions, because it's only validated by those with power and money, usually to actually give voice to this person. Oh, my goodness. Here's the woman. I don't know if you saw that story. Here's her unmade bed and her cigarette and her ashtray on the floor. And uh, her unmade the artist's unmade bed and her ashtray is up for auction and it sold for four million dollars. And and you're like, this has to be a filter somewhere saying that this you need to it's i believe it's a racket i believe it's a it's a corrupt racket that it's these validators these um influencers in the art world that are big money people have done this because it then becomes a very profitable exchange for them to be buying and selling this artwork at ridiculous prices and pumping it up so you know that is that is the issue that i face because if you don't conform to that and you come with a story that really challenges is that challenges they 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 are not interested and it to my surprise but i also understand that that's part of the journey of someone of faith like myself yeah i've had a a similar kind of conversation recently with a previous guest stephen auth and he's published pilgrimage to the museum mm. out uh, from sophia institute press and it describes how artists have strived to see God in the world and the various periods in history we've gone through and some of the great artists out there and ones who rejected God and it was somehow reflected in their art and in their own lives. So we've sort of gone through all those periods through our history maybe back in medieval times there were more God-centric pieces of art whereas today it's the modern art and again expressing the existential crisis that we see all around us how do you manage to survive commercially in this environment clearly people are buying your works well that's a good question they they do i've had it was a, an amazing experience my first paintings that i sold commercially now it's when I came back to the canvas, it's probably eight years ago. They sold for twenty-four thousand dollars, two of them, and it it just blew. And they were big paintings. One was eleven feet, and the other was probably seven feet. I mean, these I paint very large. Um, and I was my, I was like, oh my goodness, this is life changing. I said, if I could sell one of those a week or a month, I would be made. And unfortunately, it was like one have six months and then you sell a few in a row and then you sell nothing. And it's, it, it is this very, you know, I, I describe myself often as a starving artist in the sense that I've made wonderful sales like this, but then there's no consistency. And that has to go back to this issue of representation of where galleries will show their work. Or I've had people with galleries come to my studio, look at my work, be like, Oh my goodness. And then they find out more about me. You don't hear about them anymore. They just, they, they ghost you as the, the modern saying is they just completely, you know, ignore you. So, you know, as a commercial, I, it, I wish I could make this happen every week, but I, I can't. I, I, I'll go a year without selling a painting and it's torture. So in the meantime, you have to do other things. <laughs> I was a contractor for many years. I built beautiful furniture for many years. Um, that's what I did when I first came to the United States was design and build, you know, high-end furniture. And that was a, a great vehicle for my expressive talent, but it's also more of a craft than your artistic expression. So that's why my goal was always to do what I'm doing now. And I hope you know, that in time I can achieve a place where I do sell 
as as quickly as I'm painting. But right now, it's not like that. And so I've had great successes, but right now, it's it's not a consistent success rate that I can sit back and say, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm so glad I made it. I, I'm still climbing that mountain. So there was two eras in your life. There was the pre-BC era, and then when you became this born-again Christian, then you had a whole other era. So are you? I've seen your works on, on your website and in other places, and unless I was informed, wouldn't be clear to me that you wouldn't be quote-unquote PC, that you would be off offending anybody in the, the progressive elite so is it is it when they when they get your backstory they get all spooky yeah i i can tell you i've had so many inquiries through my website and then develop the email into a phone call have a wonderful phone call and the people are just like oh this sounds well and i've had i've i've sold through i've delivered i've met people i've had wonderful experiences i've got great reviews and so i meet these people and, and I, but i've had so many of these that i know that it must be that after they do the research they look at the artwork they love the artwork they call me they we talk and they find out then who i am by they google me they will literally just, that's it. You don't hear back from them. And so many times that left me stumped that I was like, it has to be that they have found out my belief system. They have just said, this guy can, I cannot, this is not the artist who we thought he would be. We, we expect him to be the wretch <laughs> and yeah. he's not. And, um, and he's trying to convince us that, you know, he's trying to express his experience with God and we don't want anything to do with that. Some people do. Some people have been, but unfortunately for now, it's the minority but um, maybe that'll change, John. That's uh, but that is that is a fact and a reality that I experience and I try to overcome. And I, I and the artist challenge is always to be faithful to what you want to paint and not try to just please people. I mean, I could paint pictures that make people oh my goodness and just you know just it's then a craft. But if you're really trying to be that expressive artist, you got to stand by your guns and. There's a there's a lonely wilderness that comes with that, and maybe it'll be for the rest of my life. I just I say this though I have the the I have a one up on Van Gogh in the sense that the poor man never sold a single piece of work in his life. So, <laughs> and that's amazing to think about. You know, yeah. it's, it's just he never sold. A single he was thing. he was the personification of the real starving artist. Absolutely, and the struggle and the passion and you know wonderful life story tragic obviously but a you know a wonderful story but the point there is that i just say i i'm in a good i'm in a good place because i've sold and sold well when i did so i keep on keeping on and opening my art gallery which i just did recently up here in upstate new york i have my own gallery now where i have my own work on display i'm just in a part of the country where the art world <laughs> is is sort of non-existent so there's another dynamic i have to deal with <laughs> so in upstate new york with properties cheap I've got a huge warehouse, a 6,000 square foot warehouse. It's beautiful. I have now a gallery with my work displayed on the wall. It looks absolutely beautiful. And yet I'm not in the right place for the 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 big money art buyers to come and buy. So it, it's always a challenge, John. It really is. So so again, just back to that, you, your career took a turn um, after, let's say, you, you came out, you, you had this conversion. Prior to that, you were much more successful commercially. No, prior to that, that was that was way where that's that nearly thirty years ago for me. So I was I as an artist as a young man, I had tried, um, and I still had the same problem of back even before I was converted. My my artistic struggle was being determined to be who I was as an artist and not 
compromise commercially to try to just sell art. Mm. That in itself is a challenge, whether you believe or not. You know, that's the artistic mm. challenge is to be true to yourself and, and let the world see your art and say, that's great. Or they just thumb their noses at you and say, I don't know what you're trying to do there. So that's another challenge all in itself. But was there any period in your career where you, you could see your, uh, see your works taken off and there were buyers out there and then suddenly it kind of seemed to dry up? No, the, the, art, the art since I started was uh, really coming back to the canvas after my 20 odd years as a, as a cabinet maker and a contractor was this sort of ebb and flow which i've been experiencing because it you know in eight years it really hasn't changed it's this year i sold very well i you know surprisingly i sold seven paintings to cornell university to the statler hotel up there um and i i was i was like i better get these delivered quickly because maybe they didn't google me enough um but you know you never know because they might they might they might, they might be pulling them off the wall it's, and, I, and I, it was funny john because my i said to my wife after well, you i, painted I hope they them, handed over the check <laughs> they did after i painted them which was finishing them at the end of the last year they wanted me to store them until july of this year and i was like okay that's fine i got plenty of room no problem but then i was like oh my book's coming out and i'm like you know what i need to because the the this is where it gets into the smithsonian story the former president or former secretary of the smithsonian institution before the current one was the former president of cornell university and he's part of my story and i had appealed to him and i take him to task for not doing anything so i was like i better get these paintings delivered get the check and then before my book comes out because um you know what can happen so and that still could happen they could tear them off the wall tomorrow i mean that's that's always a possibility but that was a blessing seven paintings to that prestigious institution to the statler hotel and then one painting i just sold to las vegas a giant painting just this year after that so i this year i'm I'm like thank god yeah because i'm surviving that's good yeah well you, your work is is beautiful so if you were to categorize yourself as an artist would you what would be the category you're a, a conservative christian artist in the what school of art the school it, as a, it's i'm an expressionist in the in the manner in which i paint all those paintings most of them all are painted on the floor with gestural paint there's no brushes involved it's all drip and splash technique my advanced developed drip and splash techniques. So, but I'm also a, a post-impressionist in the sense that I go out into nature. I'm very touched by the seasons in upstate New York, the beautiful dramatic seasons. And I get impressions in my mind of just beauty. It can be on the roadside, the, the, nat the wildflowers of summer or spring. I mean, the fall colors, the snowstorms, I get very impacted by those impressions. And then the post-impressionist doesn't paint it on the spot immediately. He goes back to the studio and tries to recreate that impression, that experience. And to me, it's always, I'm in awe of the majesty of nature. And I'm like, that's why I paint so big. I'm trying to say, it's like a little ant scratching because you're trying to say, look how wonderful this is. This is, this is amazing. So I'm trying to tell you as the viewer, this is how I experience the world and nature and the beauty of creation, which to me is a reflection of the father of creation, our God, you know, and that's that's my objective. So an abstract expressionist, I do paint abstract, but an expressionist who is also then a post-impressionist painting the impressions of nature that I see, because most abstract painters won't paint theme, they won't paint something that's objective. 
So you bring the natural world into your studio, those mountains, the skies, the sun, the changing seasons, the blossoms and all of that. Yes. And you're an optimistic painter, which brings us to your new book. The backstory to this, really, I'll let you get into the details. You, at one point, were a really big Trump supporter. Correct. And you painted, was it a surrealistic piece? of Trump and the uh, eagle and the American flag, and you indulged in it. Absolutely. And then you attempted to give it over to the Trump campaign when he was running for president. And Correct. take it up from there, because a lot of things happened along the way, and it led to essentially a, a court battle. It did. Yeah, the Trump story is fascinating. Again, that's sort of rooted in the, in the desire to see good come, to see change come in our country, um, the, my faith filter as I as I see the world and you're you're, you're gauging history you're gauging you know my I, the worldview through the scriptures my, my worldview is is informed by the Bible that's been my filter for the last 30 years of my life um, so you're always looking to see hope you're looking to see things get better I mean we, we I mean I love the, the the saying that basically says you know that you even if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow um, I'd plant my apple tree today. I think it was actually Martin, Martin Luther that said that. And so um, that's my view. And so when it came to politics as, a, as an American, I fell in love with this country and I did embark on this journey. And, and it's recorded in detail in the book because it was transformative in my life. It was surprising. Um, it was uh, exciting. It was also challenging. And it was also very discouraging. It became a battle. So this wonderful painting, Unafraid and Unashamed, seven by 15 foot that that consumed my life. Again, as an artist, I experienced the, I think the, the, the pinnacle, the apex of what artists pursue, this moment of inspiration that grips your life in that you basically can't breathe unless you're painting this image. You can't, you cannot do or see anything else. You're obsessed. You're obsessed by it. It's, it's, it's like that. I, I, one interview they asked me and I was like that great film, um, you know, it was like, the, it was Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, wonderful, wonderful film. And there was that point where he's just like this madness, you know, it was like the, it's like this complete consuming. And that's the, was just like, this is, I'm it. I, this is the artist in its fullness. And that painting then opened doors, closed doors, caused all sorts of trouble. I knew it would. I wasn't looking for trouble. I just said, you know, again, I want to be faithful to what I believe and be true to that. But then knowing that it would come with a high price because of who Trump was even then as a very controversial individual. And so it led me on this adventure, a political adventure as a, as a politically naive person. It was my school to get into politics and see about the, you know, learning with my eyes, understanding what this political madness is in this country because as an immigrant it's fascinating to come here probably as yourself when you come yeah, and see yeah. it's just like i used to see those conventions and i was like look what they're doing i've never seen anything like that on the television you're like wow i'd love to go to one of those things well i end up at cleveland i end up as an alternate delegate for new york state um just a remarkable under on the, on the republican ticket yes I, for for the for Trump and it was just a life changing experience. It's so much learning, traveling, traveling the country, and I did it on my own dime as I could. As an artist, it was always it was basically putting the painting I describe on my shoulders and like schlepping it across the country. But you know that's proverbial of the fact that it was a struggle always. But it's just was the journey, and and I also thought maybe this painting could be a 
um, a trigger for my career. It could solidify it or it could condemn it eternally. <laughs> it could damn it. But I took the, the risk because it was, uh, it was, A, it was art. It was what I believed wholeheartedly. And um, I'm that type of person. I'm going to take that high risk and, and jump in and, and pursue the end. And it ended up, oh my goodness, after this remarkable win by Donald Trump in a full-blown federal lawsuit against the Smithsonian Institution. Wow. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But you actually schlepped this piece of art to the convention. You took it down by train and you had it all wrapped up and so on. The big trip, I went to the, the Iowa caucuses in January of 2016, and I rented a huge truck. I basically lived in that truck. I, it, was, it was just a very interesting experience, but I had the painting in there. I showed it when I could in Iowa. It's such a huge painting that you couldn't take it out all the time, but I had copies. I had canvas prints, like four by eight feet, things that were manageable that I could show, which I did. But the, I think the biggest artistic achievement was when the creator of the Hope poster, the Obama Hope poster from the president that was created by Shepard Ferry, the artist, the actual person who was the patron of that, his name is Yossi Sergeant. He was the mind behind it. He'd already created one with another artist the year before, and he found Shepard Ferry doing graffiti in back alleys in, in Los Angeles, and he like commissioned him to make this uh digital it was a digitized a digitized photo of of obama well that gentleman yossi sajant when he saw my painting way way early in 2015 he said i want to see, i want your painting in politicon in los angeles and that to me was huge i was like wow my painting is going to be showed alongside which it was the obama hope poster one of the three collages that um, the mm -hmm. artist made to really solidify that work of art so that was the big cross-country trip and the showing of the painting it was just amazing how that transpired that's so, documented so, so, in the so book. it yep. went on display in a prestigious location oh absolutely it yep. validated it validated. as a work of art yeah yep. political it was called the art of politics every top political artist in the country was on show there all of the everyone who had a name was in there and my painting was the star of the show in the sense that he put it on the hero wall he called it even though he couldn't stand Trump, he said to me, there's hope in your painting. It's a vision of, it's a vision of hope. And that, you know, getting into the content you mentioned before is like how I painted or the style I painted the painting. It, it, when, when people look at it cursory, they look and they say, oh, it's, they see Trump, they see an eagle, they see a flag. But that's just sort of the basic framework. The, the story is woven into it. And it is a it's a very spiritual painting in the sense of its symbolism, but that's the, to me, the essence of storytelling through a painting and how powerful art can be. And that's why Sergeant was like, well, you, I see a vision of hope. I can't stand Trump. I'm not a, he says, I'm a leftist, leftist activist. We're completely on other, the other side of the fence, but we got on great. He was one of the few people that I, that we got on, we talked, we, it was like a, it was a bond because yeah. we both want to change and we both were, were hopeful. We had vision of hope. And that was, that to me was, I think the most, the most pertinent part of that. So Julian, what size was it? What was the dimensions? Seven by 15 feet, eight, eight by, by 16 in its frame. So what's your hope to have the Trump organization or campaign take it as a gift from you? Yes. Originally, when I first painted it and I, I was unveiling it here in Elmira, New York, the owner of the local hockey ring, um, it's a big uh, stadium. 
he says when he saw it, he's like, if you can get Trump here, he says, you can have the whole stadium, he says. And I said, that's in the store. It's this great store. And I run off to New York City to the Trump to Trump Tower with a letter and a printout of the painting and telling uh, Donald Trump, you're invited to your own rally at this arena and the unveiling of your portrait. And I was ready just to give it to the man at that time. Right. This was way early in 2015, like October, November, October 2015. So they were like, well, thank you. But no, thanks, because they had no idea who I was and no idea. I don't think where Elmira was. Um, it was just so off the map. And it's in New York State. Who cares about New York State politically if you're a conservative or Republican? Yeah. So it didn't that didn't go too far. But my intention was that and I I had different experiences that I, you know, it goes into it in the book and some of them discouraging where I just was hitting a, a wall. That's that's all I found. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Julian Raven, a commercial artist who tells us about his war with the Smithsonian Institution, which rejected his Trump-inspired painting of our former commander-in-chief. Julian is out with a new book, Odious and Cerberus, an American immigrant's odyssey and his free speech legal war against Smithsonian corruption, a true story by artist Julian Raven. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. So then ultimately you, you wanted the Smithsonian to display it and you ran into trouble. So take us through that. Well, across the country, I had met a lot from L.A., Iowa, Cleveland. I kept meeting people who would see it and they would say, oh, this needs to be in the Smithsonian. This needs to be in the Smithsonian. I didn't know what that was. And I was like, okay. Well, after he won, and I sat there wondering one day, what's the next step of the journey with this painting? That thought, I prayed. I was like, God, what do I do with this now? And that thought comes to my mind, the Smithsonian. I was like, bingo, that's exactly it. So I do the research. I find out, oh my goodness, look, in 2009 and 2013, the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, they displayed that same Obama Hope poster that I showed my painting with as a tribute to President Obama's historic win, 2009, 2013, right? Right there, they had a display, and I said, "Bingo, that's it." They they show political campaign artwork as a tribute to the incoming president. I said, "There it is. That's that is the pinnacle there. If I can get my painting on the wall, it's, it was not an if. It was like that's the precedent. They mm. show political artwork. My work is political. My work can be displayed as a tribute to Donald Trump." And so, with hesitation, because I was concerned knowing the liberal art controlled institutions that are out there. I made my application again, detailed thoroughly in the book and the drama that it was supported by many politicians, uh, po you know, political leaders of upwards of 200,000 people representatives of in New York state. And it was shot down. I get a personal call from the director herself, Kim Sayet. She calls me up one day, total surprise to me after I had, in, you know, stepped forward with my application and was calling to confirm. She calls me back. And it turns into an 11 minute argument where the, 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 you know, the Trump derangement syndrome or the anti-Trump bias, it just, and I think she thought, saw this little artist, unknown really artist 
trying to apply with this. She's like, I'm going to give this guy peace of my mind. And she's an Australian. You mm. know, he, she, she's not even a citizen of this country. She's a foreigner, still a resident as I was. I'd become a citizen. And now this foreigner is, yeah. is, is bawling me out and making every, like, just biased and personal objections to her own you know violation of the standards of Smithsonian portraiture acceptance she's just brushing them under the rug and just making making them up as she goes along I contested them all I contested each one I shot back shot back each she says to me oh the painting's too big and you're like you go to the National Portrait Gallery and there are giant portraits a giant portrait of Bill Clinton seven by nine feet it's massive and so she's oh oh and then I challenged her on that and she's like oh well, well well, I'm sorry about that. So it wasn't no too big. And, and, and she backtracks on it. Then she says, oh, it's too political. And I said, too political. I said, you had the Obama Hope poster. And I knew now that story intimately on display. I knew the story because I met the guy who, who, who commissioned it. I knew exactly how and why it was created. And I said, you had that on display. And she balked. And she says, well, your painting's not from life. And I said, well, and that meaning that I didn't sit down with Donald Trump to paint him directly. I said, no, I used images from the Internet like Shepard Ferry did. His is just a posterized photograph from Manny Friedman, an AP photographer. She shot back. No, it, it was painted by that from life. And she's lying now. Mm. It's unbelievable, John, how she's twisting reality to support her own bias. And she ends up after all this 11 minute argument in her high-pitched Australian action, she's like, I'm the director of the Smithsonian Institution. Your application will go no further. You can appeal it all you want. Click. <laughs> <laughs> and, that was, and that was, and I, I was stunned. I mean, I, I laugh about it now, but I wasn't laughing then. I was yeah. like, I felt like someone hit me in the head with a bat. Yeah. I, you know, I have a lot of respect for institutions and for authority. And here's this director of the National Portrait Gallery calling me and then taking her little axe and just be, and I was, I was devastated. After I recovered, I then embark on this journey now as a newborn citizen suing the very federal government and the Smithsonian Institution all by myself. Because again, as the starving artist, that's what I embarked. And, and what grounds did you take? Um, what, what did you argue in court? I argued the main, the main gist, and this is what leads to the big issue with the Smithsonian. This is what the book's about, the title odious and cerberus this is what the cerberus the three-headed beast is all about people read that title and they're like what in the world is that well you have to the it's like a riddle that is explained in the book and the cerberus aspect is what was really revealed my free speech lawsuit which it was based upon you, the government cannot silence viewpoints when they have already expressed political viewpoints from someone else is they take artwork like they did from Shepard Ferry and display his political viewpoint. The government cannot silence my, they have to accept all political. So I had a very, very strong case, but the strange thing that I discovered was that the Smithsonian institution is a legal enigma in Washington, DC. It's defended and protected by the courts who really don't know what it is. And uncovering the what is basically called the entity status issue or dilemma of the Smithsonian, it was like dropped in my lap. What was a free speech lawsuit became this huge issue, which is now the reason for my book. It's the reason for the objective that I'm on right now, which is what in the world is the Smithsonian Institution? Because I'm sure there are people listening, um, some who know you, some who maybe never heard of you, and they're saying, oh, gosh, maybe Julian is getting carried away here. Maybe it wasn't such a great painting. 
what gives it that artistic merit that it deserves to be on display? Well, that, that you see, is one of the major issues. The Smithsonian portraiture acceptance standards specifically say, because the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery is not about artistic merit. They have three portraits of Trump already. One of them is a sketch or doodle on a napkin. It's It says specifically the acceptance has nothing to do with the artistic merit or the prominence of the artist. So it has nothing to do with whether you're a famous artist or whether the portrait's any good. What it has to do with is whether the painting represents a historic person who has had a, a, it says a significant impact on the culture and history of the United States. That's the standard. It's the significant impact and the significance of the event surrounding that individual. So my portrait completely qualified as a historic document, whether the subject, and she, one of her complaints at the end before she, she hung up the phone was, oh, she says, after she's made all these other ridiculous uh, objections, she says, oh, it's no good. And I said, no good. I said, you've never even seen it. My, my painting is not 10 square inches on your screen. My painting is 100 <laughs> square feet. It's 100. And, and this is the truth about it. From Yossi Sajant, who is a hardcore leftist, I've had leftists look at this painting all across the country, never saying the painting was no good. They just told me they hated the, the subject. They hated Trump. They hated what I painted, but they never denied the artistic merit. I, I, that was certified across the country. But she had to say it because of her own bias. And I said to her, so, you know, he, you've seen my painting with hundreds of massive. Well, no, I haven't seen it, you know. And, and so that, that objection has no weight in the Smithsonian anyway, because it's not about. And you know how many times I've heard that argument? Oh, the painting's no good. It's nothing to do with how good it yeah. is. Whether you think it's good or not, it's not. If my painting doesn't represent the most significant historic moment in that portion of history there is no other painting that does and it that's that's where it qualifies so where did the lawsuit go in the end and where is all of that now well i battled against the department of justice who is representing the smithsonian and the the fascinating part of this is a i represented myself and I went to law school now. I had my school of politics, then I went to the school of law and thoroughly, thoroughly fascinated, challenged, was out of my depth most of the time. But I reached these breaking points in my studies and research that left me dumbfounded. That I was like, can you believe what I have discovered? See, I've this is the mystery or the mystique of the Smithsonian Institution. And most people that I've spoken to across this country, they do not have really a clue what the institution is, who owns it, who runs it. They just assume it's a government museum. And this is the thing. It's a private trust. It's a private, it's a 100% private charitable trust that is merely run by the federal government as trustee. That's all it is. And what happened in order for the courts to silence my speech rights is that they ruled Oh, no, the Smithsonian is absolutely the government. It's a full-blown federal agency. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's not. Look, in the words of, of Supreme Court justices who happen to be chancellor of the Smithsonian, you know, John Roberts is the chancellor. Most people don't know that. All the way back through history, they all say this is a private institution under the guardianship of the government. It has nothing to do with the government. So they could not deprive me my speech rights. But the status quo in Washington, D.C., even in documented speeches by uh, Chief Justice Warren Burger 
it states clearly how the courts are continually confused about the entity status of the Smithsonian Institution. And that's what my case revealed. Again, they completely got it wrong. I appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Roberts recuses himself in the decision to listen or consider my case. It's all documented in paper. And the other justices sit there and say, we're not going to take this case. I believe it was totally political. I believe that this was such a challenge to the status quo, because in essence, John, what they said now violates the separation of powers under the law in the United States as far as the composition of the government, because the Board of Regents of the Smithsonian Institution is made up of the Chief Justice, the Vice President, three members of Congress, three members of the Senate, and nine members of the public, unelected, just yeah. superheroes. And, and they cannot sit at a board table in a boardroom, which they do, and make decisions in a quorum that constitute decisions of the federal government because you're violating the separation of powers. It's just a board of trustees. That's all it is. So John Roberts of the Supreme Court is linked to the Smithsonian. So he recused himself, as you mentioned there. He's the chancellor. And the whole the whole point, again, of the mystery of this story, of the three-headed beast, is that the courts have made such a blunder. And I, I even think deliberately wanting this issue to be solved. There's documentation supporting my claims that in its currently legally defined this condition that the courts have done, they have violated the separation of powers. That's that's tremendous. In my book is endorsed by Scott Douglas Gerber, who's a very well-known law professor. And I asked him specifically, would he address the issue of the separation of powers? He didn't, but he endorsed the book to basically say, read this book. And I believe that the reason why he didn't is because it's such a touchy issue, John, that it will cause such rippling effects in DC in that institution that he would rather say, you know what, you need to read the book. I'm not going to answer that question, but read the book. And he never would have endorsed the book had he in any way thought my claims were frivolous or, or foolish. Absolutely not. And all of the stories they did in, in 2019 in the Washingtonian magazine, it was the front page of the Washington, uh, Washington Times in New York, in DC. They vetted the story and my claims through their legal system and they put it right there front and center because they knew I was onto something. But this is the place I have now, which is the next stage of my journey is the objective of seeking a congressional amendment to the act of the Smithsonian from 1846 that will clarify the status of the Smithsonian Institution. So right now, the, you didn't succeed in the lawsuits. Um, where does the painting now sit? Where does it reside? It's in storage. Oh, in storage. Yes. And do you have a name on it? Is it the Trump painting or is there? It's called Unafraid and Unashamed. Has Donald yeah. Trump seen this himself? He has, yeah. There's a, there was a copy since 2015 hanging on the wall of their campaign headquarters in New York. So he obviously would have seen it unless he was uh, hiding under a rock. Um, have you ever met Trump? I, I met him and that's a, that's a wonderful story in the book. Because I want to talk about Trump in a moment and... Yeah certain things you've said about him and i want to come up to the present how you view donald trump today so but you did meet trump yes at, at trump tower and on november the 30th in uh, I, I think it was november the first sorry if i get the date right 
at a black pastors meeting. It's in the book. I won't give away the details because that was one of the most remarkable uh, events in my life in the sense of the way things transpired. But I got to meet him and it was the same day I had given the campaign this big, huge crate with the painting in it. And they had gone downstairs to secret service. And I, when I met him and I got to speak to him very briefly, but I was right there in that meeting and I got to ask him, had you seen the painting or did you, you know, I was the artist that painted the painting. All I got for him was, oh, very nice. Um, really no, nothing more. Whether he actually knew what I was talking about or not, I have no idea. So you had that encounter with him. You were a huge Trump backer at that point. And yes. there's a section in your book um, where you describe Trump almost as the little like the prodigal son, I suppose, um, where you believe he was divinely chosen to yeah, this, become this is one president. Of those, this uh, is that one of those, you believe he had a, a, a kind of a conversion. I, I don't believe my painting is a a painting of hope of Trump converted. Mm. That was a lot of that is the my own beliefs. And again, my worldview and hopes for Trump to become the greatest version of himself would be in a conversion. So the painting is is a is a prophetic. It's a painting I painted of Trump becoming president because I was inspired to the point that I knew he was going to win. People thought I was crazy. This is summer of 2015. Um, but the painting is also a painting of a man who's coming to a converted experience. All of the uh, appealing to the evangelicals, the religious talk to me was just all uh, talking points, appealing to a base because he knew that it was a base that he could, uh, you know, get to persuade. He was championing Christian causes, so he was going to have the church and Christian people by the boatload supporting him. So um, there was no doubt in my mind, my experience, again, documented, detailed in the book of how and why I came to that conviction, played a great part in my support for him. But a man is a man. God, God doesn't force people to drink. He doesn't make you do what he, God is, is he gives men, he calls, he, he opens doors, but he gives us the choices to make. And that's where, you know, we, our job to pray for men in leadership, to pray for presidents, even to pray for the president we have now, because even though you may disagree and, and have to, we still pray that God would do something great in their lives, that they will see the light. And that was then my responsibility from then onwards in my support. But, um, it led to some very interesting things that took place as far as what Trump did and things that Trump did that was there made me start to really wonder, is he going off the rails or is he actually turning? And there were many instances where I saw a genuine turn um, towards faith that he, before it was just like talking points. He was just saying it to, to, to feed the base, to get people interested. But then there was a, you could see that there was a, a there was more conviction to what he was saying. But whether that led to anything deeper than that, I don't believe it has as of yet. Because there are a lot of people listening will say, oh, gee, yeah, you know, he was on the Republican ticket. He had to corral the Christian base, the fundamentals, and he got a huge Catholic vote. That's the side I'm on. So sure. overall, a big Christian vote. Sure. And people say, well, gee, you know, why are you surprised? He's going to say he's pro-life. He's going to say he's pro-family. He's going to say he's pro-conservative. Um, you think he was moving deeper than, than that at some point? Yeah, you, you, I definitely saw that because 
you you see that the, you know people are, they, this is the game they play if they're going to say something to win people i mean that's not who i am i want to be a straight shooter and say what i st- you know but this is the game that this man plays so i saw you know you've seen it and i actually know somebody that was challenged once who was an atheist who was challenged by uh, someone ministering that said to him well why don't you just it was sort of like the you know the old bet that's out there um, it's slipping my mind right now but why don't you live the Christian life you know for three months and see what happens and see if your life improves and that you're happier and you find purpose just do it as a mere exercise whether you believe it or not just go along with the you know and and the man did and he got converted and so it's as if that same type of um thing with trump that as he was actually you know looking in this direction i need their votes i'll say what they want to hear it starts to have an impact and if truly god's hand is on the man that's ultimately going to be the intent because like with constantine in you know as we saw in those the massive the, the entire western civilization was was created by this tremendous conversion of one man who turned from his idols and or, you know Roman idols to believe in Christ, and so in that same way, I had a lot of faith that this man Trump could be of the same stature and have the same global impact for good, as we saw with the conversion of Constantine. So, um, I, you know, that was my hope and prayer. Now, the question is: Is did that transpire? <laughs> because that takes us up to a very um, seminal moment, a very controversial moment. It's been all over the news, the um, January 6th, um, let's call it escapade in Washington, and the hearings we're listening to at the moment. That seems to have um, played into your thinking about Trump today. Listen, when because knowing Trump as a I saw him as an unrepentant sinner with such great potential. You apply great in my life. You apply grace to someone like that. You're like, you listen. He's got tremendous strengths. He's the type of executive leader we need right we need right now, and so you sort of apply grace. He's not. He's not. He's not winning, or he's not going to qualify because of his moral virtue. He's just not. But these are the attributes that he is. He's a decisive, courageous executive decision maker, and that's the that's what we needed. So, but as that developed. Over the years, 2017, 2018, and I saw a sort of persistent strategy rather than changing to say, look, I had to use these sort of brutal tactics to win. Uh, we need to. I made a video in 2015 of saying, listen, I understand there's people that are angry. We're angry. You want to see change. I said, but that, that's got to change into something creative and something positive and a vision of hope. Because if not, it's just going to end up being a fire that will tear down mm-hmm. rather than actually be productive and creative we need vision that's life-giving we need vision of change that brings the best out of people and you know so i saw a i didn't that was my hope and i saw a constant departure from those type throughout the campaign and you know there were things like you know the 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 dis, you know his disparaging comments at the beginning were like well you know the i think the one that about rosie o'donnell in one of those debates was sort of like epic and it was just he was hysterical yeah. but it was like more than that it became very very toxic and one of them th- throughout the campaign that really bothered me as much as i really just disliked adam schiff there was this rally i was watching on television it was like a clip of it and they were mad at Schiff, and so he starts calling him pencil neck, and he's attacking his physical attributes, and then we're going to make a T-shirt pencil neck. It was just disgusted. I'm like, that is just – it's no. disgusting. It's just not right. I said, I, I dislike Schiff. I dislike what he – but you have to respect his office. 
you have to respect the man as, as we all have shortcomings and failings and we all have weaknesses and it's just wrong to attack people in their person. It's just, there's never, never in my mind, uh, there's no, no, and I saw that then was red meat and they were like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that just disgusted me. And it, it started to shift my heart and, and I continued to pray for him. My prayer became, Lord, drive Donald Trump to his knees, put him on his face in repentance, that our only hope is that this man genuinely is repentant, is convicted, and that he turned from his ways and embraced. Because that's where I saw the massive com conversion potential of Constantine, the massive conversion potential throughout Scripture of someone like Cyrus, we saw that God used in the Scriptures, um, and even Nebuchadnezzar, who we see God use tremendously, but really only after he's, he bows and humbles himself. And I didn't see that happening. And it culminated with the election. You know, see, my prayer all of 2019 and 20, that God humbled this man, when Trump lost in, 20, in 2020, it was, this is the greatest humiliation for any man like Trump to lose to somebody like Joe Biden. If you want to call him Sleepy Joe, that's such a humiliation. And mm -hmm. I thought at that time, I was like, wow, this is the humiliation that Trump needs. He needs to humble himself. He needs to shake this man's hand, go away and come back in 2024 and a changed man with a vision, with, with hope, with, with that type of, with a contrite spirit and come back in 2024. And I believe if he had have just done that and walked away and America would have been on a different track, he could have, with, with the debacle of Joe Biden's presidency, it's, it would have been a landslide, sort of like Reagan, that Trump would have come back and won in 2024. But I didn't see that happen. I saw a man who refused to accept defeat. And that's part of his temperament. He's so obsessed with winning. There's no sense of, of, of accepting defeat, no sense of humility, no sense of recognizing, a, you know what, maybe Bill Barr was warning him at the beginning of 2020, you're going to lose. Uh, COVID came and the way he handled COVID, you're going to lose. Yeah. Gonna, and I thought COVID was the greatest chance for him to, 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 to rally the nation and say, this is a common threat to us as Americans. And we come together and fight this together as a people. And to, it wasn't, it was, he, he knew the threat to the economy he knew that this would and he was he chose the economy over people and that to me was you know it was like the the point of like you just you're just going to pay a price for this and he did and so january the 6th then was the worst expression of that where it was just everything everything ungodly and everything unrighteous was just stirred up in people who are already angry and they knew what they were doing I know a lot of people that are very angry and it's easy to stir them up and then just let them loose. And you don't even have to tell them what to do. What to do. They're just going to do it because they're so mad and so mm -hmm. angry. And so I was very, very disappointed. And I called President Donald Trump after that, the day after it's in an article in the Washington Times. They printed a big article, second page, that he should resign. I flipped my painting upside down with the words resign and that he should resign the presidency because of the disgrace that I believe that it was to our institutions, to our democracy, to our way of life, and that you can't tear it all down because you lost. Julian, he's a fascinating character, an engrossing character, and clearly a flawed character. But you mentioned a lot there about the country needed one of these strong 
bureaucratic political figures, a towering figure, but he came with all those warts, puffed up pride that brought him down. Has the country learned anything from the Trump candidacy? Is there any kind of a a chance, even a sneaking chance that Trump could come back in and will have learned from his mistakes or is it all just too late? Well, I think whilst our heart beats, it's always redemption is always open to us. And I think that in the condition we are now and how he's persisted in persisted in his position, I think that it makes him unelectable. I think he's going to have the support. You know, you saw McCarthy on January the 7th or whenever it was stand up in Congress and say, speak the truth. It was like he, he said, this man is responsible. This man needs to be held to account. That was beautiful. That was truth. It was like that's and then he he just this bizarre Machiavellian dance and just change it into, oh, my goodness. No, we can't. Yeah. And I just could not. I've I've lost friends over this. Yeah, they, they, it's 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 sort of it is cultic in the sense of people refuse to accept this because I understand our hopes and they they're putting their hopes. This man's going to save America. He has all that potential. But we are a nation of law, the rule of law. We're a nation that celebrates the Constitution and those things. And as a Christian, you know, submission to law. That's how we function. And if you are yeah. going to think that you're above that. Yeah, and, respect and for the law. It's if you if you think it's just something that you can, you know, what we can work within it. We have the greatest institutions on earth yeah. that need to be redeemed. They need to be reformed. Voting, yes, there are voting problems. That's fixed voting, but not in retrospect, tear it all down because you lost. Are you maybe getting at Trump's? Uh, I'm going to use this in air quotes because it may not be entirely accurate, totalitarian style of tendencies. I think that his personality, without a doubt, drifts into that area because it's part of his strengths to buck the system, to buck the status quo. It's, 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 that's part of his strengths. But then when it's, uns, when it's unsubmitted to law, when it's you know, outside of law, there's nothing to hold the man. If you don't bow and accept your legal constraints, with with that gives us freedom. You know, as you yeah. mentioned at the beginning, we're, we're truly free within the constraints of the Constitution. It's a wonderful mechanism to give us freedom. But if you're going to say no, we're just going to trounce that because of my own personal lust for power, or that's then a very very dangerous place. And I see that happening. And I used to be accused of my painting. People would say, "Oh, yes." propaganda it's like russian propaganda to say i never painted it like that that's how you're seeing it that's not how i saw it but i said to my wife you know uh, over time i said you know isn't it interesting you know how how prescient that painting could have really been mm. because it 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 may have been important to say this is a direction this man may ultimately be going and we have to consider that and we have to say that's totally unacceptable as americans yeah. it's, it's just unacceptable so trump was in your view tearing down the institutions he has set out to defend initially so just a massive amount of contradictions there uh, absolutely and and i can i can only 
put it down to this terrible brokenness that he has of, of, of obviously the lack of humility, just, just sportsmanship, you know, not being yeah. able, you know, you, you read these stories and there was someone who even wrote a book about, they called him commander in cheat. I didn't read the book, but about his golfing practices. I mean, he's just known to be a, he's just a cheat. And it's like those terrible personal characteristics when they are amplified in that seat of power yeah. are so dangerous because law no longer confines the man and you think you're above law. And that is, I believe, where we are. And that's why I believe he needs to repent. He needs to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, for the you gave me this seat of power, this privilege, this responsibility, and I blew it. And yeah. I'm sorry to the American people. And that's where redemption can come in. And it may be 2024 may not happen. He may come back after that. You see, God can keep a man in his right mind. He could be in his 90s and be in his right Potentially. mind. You know, I, know, I know people of that age that are remarkable at that physically. You know, so yeah. it's God is, the, God is God, John. He's in control. And it's just we also have to act our part in saying no when the person is out of line. I want to just talk briefly then about what Trump represented. He got the trains running. Um, he would say, and people would agree with this, that he kept his campaign promises on pro-family issues, on taxation, uh, on tariff issues, on the economy, institutional change. He did all those things because he was such a strong, persuasive character and wheeler dealer this former manhattan playboy absolutely absolutely i write about that in detail giving credit where credit's due he was a remarkable executive that that was his appeal he he just made those decisions this is what's going to happen do it do it that's what was so cutting edge about him and nobody can deny the the, the fire the economy was on the 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 way that joblessness had just just disintegrated and unemployment in the black mm. and the hispanic communities was just record historical you can't nobody can deny the evidence you can't deny his strengths there's no doubt he created a lot of relationships with with churches the black churches all churches christians jewish community and he did something also he looked at the inner cities of america with he had plans to to help revive them economically and i think he might have succeeded where others would have failed with oh, that without fair assessment yeah, without a doubt. And that was when I met Trump at the Black Pastors meeting, that was his pitch to them to talk about, you know, the lowering corporate tax rates to bring in those billions of dollars floating around the world and other tax havens to bring them back to countries. And they started to trickle in. And where are those companies going to take those billions? They're going to reinvest them. They're going to reinvest in the inner cities. And that's going to be his emphasis to give to drive job creation and industry within the inner cities. Those things he did. I mean, I, to the degree that we we saw it happened we saw the the data the data said those things were happening and again that goes back to that trump's economy was ablaze and he saw it ablaze and said you know the pandemic you know covid is going to destroy this economy it's going to just shut it down which it did and rather than try to maintain his thing i wish he just had have said you know what if it shut down people are more important and we will we'll we can start the economy again you can't fix people's broken lives you can't get dead people back you know because COVID has been so devastating so you know it's one of those things it's just a big mistake that he made that cost him the presidency 
when you look at America today, uh, we, we talk about the polarization, the sharp divisions in our culture and in our society, more polarized than in decades, in generations. What's your thoughts about that? Why are we at this place? What, what brought it about? Well, I believe as a person of faith, I mean, I've been a preacher of the gospel. I've been in ministry uh, settings for many years. And my, again, my faith worldview is what informs me. And I, I believe it's as simple as a departure from faith. You know, we, in our dollar bill, it says in God we trust. And we're either a nation of liars or we're actually true to that. And if, if we are a people of faith, that's how even after the Civil War, I believe there was um, Americans managed to get along because there was faith on both sides. They had they had faith in the South and there was differences and OK, well, but there was ultimately a grounding faith that in God we trust was true. And unfortunately, today, our problems are exacerbated because there is a massive departure. You see the recent statistics like Europe. I mean, you see a Europe drift away from faith and the just the sort of godless, you know, secularism that's come upon them. America is is fast pursuing that same end, and those aspects cause, uh, you know, a loss of character. People don't fear God. There's no fear of divine retribution. There's no fear of what comes after you die. There's no restraint. You see, I I, I meditate on that a lot, which is the restraining power on people's lives. What restrains us? The American system was designed that the, the, the founders were trusting the American people to police themselves. I mean, John Adams, I quote him in the book in, in chapter 67, he speaks about that the constitution is, is incapable of controlling human passions. He says, America, our constitution is unfit for any other people except a moral and religious people. So we're responsible to police ourselves by a moral standard that then makes the constitution work beautifully. But if that restraint upon the people to control their own morals, and if that's gone, the word of God and, you know, the presence of God in public life, then we have this, un, you know, this unconstrained moral madness that we're experiencing that contributes to the hatred, contributes to the divisiveness. There's no love. People don't have just a natural affection for their fellow man. And those things are all evidences of a departure of a culture from God, who is ultimately the reason for our being and the reason to have a, a, a society that we used to have. Not perfect, yeah. but so much more civil. So we're witnessing, in your view, a moral and cultural collapse. Uh, people look to the state for, maybe in your words, salvation for all the answers rather than into their own families and local communities. Sure, sure. And that I think that's the genius of America. That was their vision. I write about that in detail, you know, because I believe that's that's the message. That's what we need to get back. Because if we don't have a, a, a that that self-policing aspect in our lives, I quote this other gentleman, I can't remember his name right now, but he says that men will either be controlled by basically the word of God within us controlling our hearts or the bayonet on the outside under force of law, under the threat of violence, under tyranny. And, you know, because we are so disposed, all of us to darkness, that's our condition. We have to have a, we have to have a, 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 a moral straitjacket that's not oppressive, that gives us freedom, but restrains our darkest side. And if, we, if none of us have that and they all throw it off, 
then we have this this unhinged and unrestrained madness. And it's very dangerous because people are so angry, they're so full of hate that they can then say, well, we're just going to unleash that on the people we despise. And that's just a complete failure of the American experiment. Uh, Julian, we're almost out of time. Uh, just we'll come back to your book again. G give us the title where it can be. People can pick it up, buy a copy. Odious and Cerberus, an American immigrant's odyssey and his free speech legal war against Smithsonian corruption. And you can buy that on Amazon. You go to my website, julianraven.com and find the link. But right now it's available on Amazon, hard copy, hardback and soft cover. And um, that's the best place to get it right at the moment. And your art gallery is in New York State, so any, oh, it's open yeah, yeah. to anybody the, up in in your in your town in your picturesque town. They can pop in and see some of your wonderful. They can. Works. Yep, Elmira, New York, is where I live. Yep, and uh, it's open to the public. I don't open it every day. It's mainly by appointment at the moment. Just this, the summer months are just that's the way to do it. We just opened as well, but I hope to get into more of a evening routine for people who may be going out to dinner in the area to go and then see something culturally relevant, significant. That's, that's yeah. the power of art. That's how art contributes yeah. to the yeah. human yeah. experience. Yeah. Uplifts the spirit. Your art lifts the spirit, right? That's the goal. That's, I've looked at artworks many times and sometimes I've come away depressed. So yes. I need art. It'll make me happy. Yes. <laughs> and I, you know, one, one, one show that I did have years ago, I had one gentleman come in and he, you know, because my work is expressionist, he's like, oh, it looks like uh, Jackson Pollock. He says, yeah, but it's, he then said, but it's happy Pollock. Because Pollock's, <laughs> he was a happy Pollock. And I was like, hey, I'll take that because that was my, that was my objective. I wanted people to walk out of my show uh, in cloud nine, like inspired and lifted up. And that's what we need because there's such power in our lives in that. Well, if I visit the gallery, I might just go during happy hour. That would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I'm, sure I, I'm sure I would really enjoy it. And um, there will be a sequel, I'm guessing, to this ongoing saga with the uh, Trump painting. It's well, going well, yeah, to end well. Well, what I'm doing right now is this next season of my journey that hopefully will lead me on a national book tour is to compel a congressional amendment. See, that's Congress has to fix this problem. It's such a glaring problem. The U.S. PAC taxpayer pays $700 million a year out of pocket to the, they, the Smithsonian basically appropriates that amount. And there's no, there's no legal accountability. It's like a slippery eel. No one can hold this institution to account. So that's my objective right now. That's what I'm pursuing. And, and that Congress correct the definition of the institution and that retroactively will, will undo my lawsuit and give me the vindication that I'm looking for. And it may be that my painting will find its historic place in the archive of pictorial history at the Smithsonian Institution. Well, I look forward to that day. Julian Raven, thank you for being my guest. Thank you very much, John, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.